You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. All right, um, we're going to be moving into the sermon. Today we're starting a new sermon series called The Needs of the Heart. The past several weeks we've been doing these one-off sermons, but uh, starting today we'll be spending five weeks going through the wisdom books, uh, a sermon, uh, a wisdom book for each sermon. And if you're not familiar uh, what the wisdom books are, so the Bible has 66 books. The Bible itself is one book. It's divided into 66 books written by different folks and things like that. And oftentimes these books are divided up into different literary genres. And so you have, for example, history books and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles and so on. And so one of these genres is the wisdom books. And they consist usually, sometimes people categorize them differently, but they consist of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Now, if I'm perfectly honest, you know, I confess I don't, these aren't my go-to books of the Bible. You know, in general, I like to read the prose sections of the Bible, you know, the stuff uh, that, you know, where where you have a full block of text, not like a line, a line, a line like that. Um, in a, lo- a lot of blank space. You know, I like the history stuff, the, the letters to the church and things like that because they're more straightforward and more practical to me. Um, but about a third of the Bible is not prose, but poetry. And most of the wisdom books is poetry. And the thing with poetry is it's anything but straightforward and practical. It's o- emotional, it's experiential, it's subjective. There's a certain uh, kind of ambiguity to it. And I'm not that... I don't jive in those sort of contexts. I'm not a super emotional guy. I don't know if you can tell. I'm not a super emotional guy. I'm not a feelings guy. I'm a facts guy. And so my natural inclination when I'm reading the Bible is to uh, try to boil down the passages into doctrines and principles and then to, to try to dissect the, the-, the theology, try to figure out what it means. But that's not necessarily how to read poetry. You know, poetry is largely about feelings when Bono, the lead singer of U2, sings, I have climbed the highest mountains. You're not supposed to go, oh, really? Did uh, Bono really climb up Mount Everest? Is that really what he did? Uh, Because poetry is not supposed to be technical. It's not supposed to be exact. There's a lot of uh, figurative language or a lot of exaggeration used because poetry is about conveying a feeling. When Bono sings that, you're supposed to hear that line and you go, wow, that's rad. I, you know, I feel that, you know, and I, I'm saying rad intentionally because you use 80s slang with 80s songs. Anyways, in the same way, we aren't supposed to get technical with the wisdom books. Um, they're not trying to teach specific theolo- uh, theological truths oftentimes, but they are just putting our emotions or feelings into words. You know, when Job, uh, as we'll later talk about, when he talks about how it would have been better if he was never born, or when David talks about how God has abandoned him, you know, we're not supposed to have these theological discussions or doctrinal discussions to talk about, oh, is it true really that, you know, it would have been better if Job wasn't born? Or is it true that God really abandoned David? Because at the time, they're not, they're not talking about theological truths. What we're supposed to go is, wow, that's rad, or fill in whatever word you want to choose, okay? Wow, I relate to that. I feel that. I jive with that. Because these books, they are putting your feelings into words. You know, maybe you have this incident, uh, you've had this incident before where you're trying to say something, you're trying to communicate something, you have this feeling, this thought, but you can't really put it into words. You can't find the right words. And somebody says, you know, are you trying to say blank? Are you trying to say that this and this and this? And then you go, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to say. 
That's exactly what I was trying to say. And in that moment, you're able to put words to your feelings that you couldn't describe before. And because of that, you're even able to understand your feelings better. And I think that's what should happen when we read biblical poetry. It's supposed to help you to put words to your feelings to understand and to make sense of your feelings. Or another way to think about it is this. Biblical prose or non-poetry is often intended to teach you about God. Biblical poetry, on the other hand, is often intended to teach you about yourself. Not always, but this is often a trend that I find when, I read, when I'm reading the Bible. Biblical prose teaches you about God, but biblical poetry teaches you about yourself because they reveal feelings and thoughts that you have and they put them into words and help you to understand them better. You know, I think one of the reasons why God made it so that a third of the Bible is poetry is because he didn't want just a bunch of Christian uh, trivia nerds, Pharisees. He didn't want people who just knew a bunch of facts. He wanted people who knew themselves. And in doing so, by knowing themselves, they actually know God more. Because at the end of the day, it's not about knowing things about God, but it's about knowing God. You know, in the words of the church father, John Chrysostom, he says, find the door of your heart you will discover it is the door of the kingdom of God. Find the door of your heart and you'll discover it is the door of the kingdom of God. And as we read and explore these wisdom books, it's like we're walking on these different paths to the different doors of our hearts. And uh, through that process, we understand God better. But it can be a messy process, you know, because our hearts are messy. They're complex, they're messy, and we, we can't really make sense of them. And we contradict ourselves sometimes. And we see that even in the wisdom books, they seem to contradict themselves Um, And sometimes we don't know why we do what we do. But when we read the Bible, I think what happens is that the Bible dissects us, kind of like what the author of uh, Hebrew says. It's like a double-edged sword. And it gives us clarity and awareness about ourselves. You know, the wisdom books, they cover a lot of ground. We won't have time to cover them all in these next five weeks. But what we will be doing is uh, each week we'll be putting a spotlight on a different dimension of the human heart that's sort of embodied by one of these five books. And we'll be showing how each book highlights the specific need, one of five specific needs that we have in our hearts. So today we're talking about uh, the book of Job, and we will be exploring the human heart's need for justice. Let's dive in. The setting of Job is set in chapters 1 and 2. And just to summarize, uh, Job is this wealthy guy. He's this righteous, blameless, upright guy. He communes with God regularly. And then this evil spiritual figure um, called the accuser, most English Bibles translate this word into uh, a Satan. He makes a deal with God and God allows this accuser to destroy Job uh, his, his whole life. So Job loses his kids, loses his wealth, he loses his health, he loses everything. And he also has this... Uh, painful skin condition and uh, you know it's pretty horrible you might think 2020 is bad uh, and for many of you it's pretty bad but Job 1 and 2 were really bad it's really bad you know check out what Job does however in two places first Job chapter 1 starting from verse 20 it says then Job arose this is right after he lost a lot of stuff and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped and he said naked I came from a mother's womb and naked shall I return The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then the next chapter, chapter 2, starting from verse 9. Then his wife, Job's wife, said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. 
which is a natural thing to say if you're going through a lot of suffering, you want to do stuff like that. But verse 10, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So what does Job do? He worships God. He humbly accepts what God has given to him. And, you know, sometimes people who are reading the book of Job, they stop right there and they go, that's what we've got to do. When we're going through suffering, we should be like Job. When bad things happen, you know, just suck it up. Don't get emotional. Don't get angry. Just accept it. Worship God and allow your worship to drown out your sorrows. But I think there's something wrong with this type of thinking. And that is that it totally skips over Job uh, chapters 3 to 42, which is the rest of the book. And that's where all the poetry is. Job 1 to 2 is where all the prose is. And then 3 to 42, you see many examples of Job getting very emotional and sometimes even very angry. And it can be kind of jarring to see that. You know, here are some examples. I'm going to read off a bunch of examples about how Job is getting emotional. Job 3, 20 to 22, this is what he says. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death? But it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. So Job, he's talking about himself or he's putting some, uh, uh, yeah, he's talking about himself in the third person. And he's saying that he longs for death like a man longing for treasures. He imagines himself rejoicing exceedingly when he finally dies. You know, that's some pretty uh, stark language. You know, the term we would use for that today is suicidal thoughts that, That seems like what he's doing. He is trying and longing to end it all. Pretty brutally honest. Here's another one. This is Job 10, 18 through 19. This is what Job says. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. So he wishes that his mother miscarried. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, God, why did you give me this life? I wish I never lived. Now, that's pretty raw. I don't know if you've ever been in such a mental state before where um, life is so horrible and wretched that you were willing just to not just not only give it all up, but even give up your whole life, past and present and future. Even all the good that you experience. It's not like you're saying, you know, I experienced some good in my life, but I just want to end right now. You're saying all the good that I ever experienced, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth all this bad that I've experienced. Here's another one. This one gets a little bit graphic. This is Job talking about God. And this is what he says about God. Job 16, 9 through 13. He, God, has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Verse 11. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as a target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. This is some, I mean, this is almost like a, a horror film right here. He says that God hates him. He says that God is breaking him apart, dashing him to pieces, violently dismembering his organs. Now, at this point, you know, if you're trying to read 
poetry with this, you know, theological debate sort of lens, then you may have some questions. You may wonder, wait a minute, wait a second. Does God really hate people? And is God responsible for violence? And does God cause pain and suffering? And I think if you're asking those questions, I think you're reading the poetry wrong. Okay, this is poetry. It's not meant to answer theological doctrinal questions like that. What this is meant to do is communicate feelings. And in this moment, Job certainly feels this way. So regardless of whether or not God does this thing, these things, this is what Job is experiencing right now. And I think because Job writes like this, I think it gives us permission to voice these feelings too. I don't know about you, but you know, oftentimes um, I don't give myself permission to uh, express my emotions, to process my emotions, to feel these negative emotions. I relate to the great philosopher Elsa in Frozen uh, when she says, uh, be the good girl you always have to be, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. You know, I think a lot of us, we operate that sort of way when we have negative feelings, we want to conceal those emotions. We force ourselves to not feel those emotions so that we can continue our good person image. And I think Christians especially can be pretty good at this uh, because we also have sort of a theological framework, a backing for this sort of living. When we are experiencing negative things, we often tell ourselves things like, you know, don't trust your feelings, just trust God. Or sometimes we sort of guilt ourselves out of these feelings. We say things like, you know, why are you feeling this way? God loves you so much. He's lavished so much uh, joy and peace on you. And so stop feeling those things. Or when we have conflict, we might quickly, you know, jump to he gives and takes away. Uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what we read earlier in Job, right? And again, all of these things are true. We're not lying when we're saying these things. In fact, we're saying the truth. We're saying the truth when we're saying these things. They are theologically accurate, but sometimes in the midst of suffering, they are not emotionally accurate. And what I mean by that is we are forcefully bottling up our emotions uh, with, by telling us these truths, and we are giving ourselves the impression that we are uh, taking our negative thoughts captive and removing them, but in reality, we're not removing them. We're just burying them deep down inside. And like a mold in the wet darkness, burying it only makes things worse. So instead of bearing our emotions, what should we do instead? Well, let's see what Job did. In Job 7, 11, he says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. In other words, I'm not going to bury it. I'm going to speak my mind. He didn't bottle it up. He openly communicated these emotions, even though they were negative and stark and jarring. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman III, they write in their book, The Cry of the Soul. They say, emotions are like messengers from the front lines of the battle zone. Our tendency is to kill the messenger, but if we listen carefully, we will learn how to fight the war successfully. So there's this analogy of emotions being like messengers from the battle from the battle zone, and he's saying, they're saying negative emotions aren't the issue. Don't shoot the messenger. What these negative emotions are doing, they're like messengers of war informing us of the issue. So when these negative emotions, whether it's fear or anxiety, you know, or uh, uh, anger, when these negative emotions come our way, don't shoot the messenger, listen to the messenger. Pass on the message of the messenger, learn from the messenger, make make adjustments uh, because of the messenger and grow. You know, today in America, we are at an unprecedented, unprecedented, that word has been overused a lot the past year, but we are at an unprecedented time of political unrest. And uh, I would propose just like a person 
who has bottled up his or her emotions for a very long time, our country has been bottling up a lot of its problems for a very long time. Uh, Just like a person who has refused to recognize his problems or negative emotions, we as a nation, we have by and large refused to recognize issues. In In our history, we try to ignore them, we try to bury them, we try to Think about positive things instead. Uh, we try to focus on things like, you know, we're the greatest country on earth. We're the most prosperous country on earth. We're the land of the free, the home of the, the brave. And I think that's all true for, uh, you know, for many folks. But for many people in this country, it's not experientially true. And so what we have is we have these messengers of war telling us about all the ways in which our country has failed them. All the ways our country has gone wrong and these messengers, they're trying to inform us of these deep issues of our country and some of us uh, who are not as in tune with some of these issues, we, tr- we react aggressively to those messengers, right? Like Elsa, we want to conceal our problems because we want to be a good nation. But the plot of Frozen and the plot of Joe both show us that we cannot simply bury our problems. We need to verbalize our problems because it is only through verbalizing our problems well, healing and restoration then begin. Only after acknowledging injustice can justice work begin. What after all is justice? You know, the word unfortunately has a lot of political baggage and it means a lot of different things that it wasn't supposed to mean. But at its core, justice is the process of making things right. That's what it is. It's making things right. But before things can be made right, first we need to identify how things went wrong. And that's why I think verbalizing our emotions and feelings are so important. When we bottle up our emotions, we never identify what is wrong. But when we express our emotions and we process our emotions, we put words to them, we read these, the, the the biblical poetry and we say, that's how I feel. Then we start to begin this journey of understanding what is wrong so that we'll, so that we can make things right. And I think that's what Job does. A good chunk of the book consists of talking about what he views as injustice. Job 19, verse 7 to 11, Behold, I cry out violence. There's violence going on, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He, this is God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has hit darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory. And taking the crown from my head, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Job is saying there is no justice. He's looking at himself, his condition. He's trying his best to be a good man, a praying man. But God treats him like an enemy. And even when he calls for help from God, it seems like God is putting up this big wall. There's no response. You know, it's this classic question that many people often ask today, which is that why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And alternatively, why do good things happen to bad people? Job also complains about that. This is Job 21, 7 through 15. He asks, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Why are all these good things happening to the wicked people? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and uh, does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and the children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and peace. They go down to Shoal. They say to God, depart from us. They're even rude to God, right? We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? So here he is. 
He's trying his best to be a good man and he's going through immense suffering. And meanwhile, he's looking at all these Jewish schmoes over here. They're wicked people. They're not caring about the ways of the Lord. They're not serving him or praying him to him. They're, and they're prospering. They have it good. So how is that fair? You know, maybe you've been frustrated at similar things before. Oftentimes it feels like, you know, the people who are the worst, they have, the be- they have it the best. You know, sometimes the laziest kids in class who copy other kids' homework, they, be- they get the best grades. And sometimes the-, the college athletes who commit sexual assaults, they get away with it. And sometimes the CEOs who pay star- starvation wages to their employees, they become the billionaires of society. And Job is asking, how is this fair? How is this just? You know, many Christians, we cannot wrap our minds around the idea that bad things happen to good people and vice versa. They're like Bildad, one of Job's friends. He shows up uh, along with other friends in the book of Job. And he says in Job 8, 3 to 6, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And that's a rhetorical question. He believes the answer is no. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgressions. In other words, if you do bad, You'll get bad consequences. Verse five, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. If you do good, you will get good consequences. That's what he's saying. Throughout the book of Job, Job has these so-called friends. Don't make friends like these, by the way. But Job has these so-called friends who all say basically the same thing, which is that God will enforce karma. If you're bad, you will have negative consequences. If you're good, you'll have Good consequences, positive consequences. So be good, Job, and things will get better. Oh, you're not doing well? Then just, just start doing good things. And then, you, then God will take care of you. You're probably going through immense suffering because you've done some bad things. So try to figure out what it is, repent, and start doing some good things. But as, as anyone who has experienced life knows, karma isn't a real thing. You know, it's just wishful thinking. We go through countless examples where we do good and we experience bad, and we do bad and we experience good. So, the question then is, if God isn't enforcing justice, supposedly, and if karma isn't a real thing, karma isn't enforcing justice, then who is? You know, a lot of people, they've decided that they will take matters into their own hands because they won't trust anybody outside of themselves to enforce justice. They've decided they can't trust anyone to do it for them, so they need to make things right on their own. You know, at the individual level, we want justice. And so what we do is we work hard to get rich, we work hard to get fit. We work hard to get what we think we deserve. We take matters into our own hands. Now, at the social level, we want justice as well. So we work hard to pass laws. We work hard to enforce our points of view. And we work hard to make sure everybody gets what they deserve. We take matters into our own hands. And don't get me wrong, it's not bad to do these things, of course. God has given us gifts and opportunities, and we are to seize them, to apply them. For, the good, for our good and the good of our neighbors. But what's fascinating about the book of Job is that Job doesn't do that. Nowhere in the book of Job do we see Job taking matters into his own hands. We don't see him visiting the doctor. We don't see him rebuilding his house. We don't see him trying to work a job. Maybe he does these things and it's just not recorded. But the point is these are not the focus of the book. If he's not taking matters into his own hands, then what is he doing? Throughout the book of Job, the answer is clear. Job is trusting in God. He is putting everything in God's hands. And it's interesting because it almost seems contradictory. Um, Job, he is simultaneously accusing God of being silenced, simultaneously accusing God of attacking him and trusting in God. But that's how the human heart works, right? We're sometimes contradictory. In fact, check out Job 27 to 20, uh, 2 to 20, uh, sorry, 27, 2 to 6. As God lives, who has taken away my rights, 
and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So do you see what's going on? He says, this God who has taken away his rights, who has taken away, who has made his soul bitter, this is the God that he will serve. He's saying, I will hold on to my integrity and righteousness. And here's another one. This is Job 13 to 15. Though he, this is God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's saying, even though God is slaying me, God is destroying me. He is obliterating me. Even though I want to argue with him, still I will hope in him. You know, uh, Job isn't just treating God like this diary where he's just ranting his thoughts, putting all of his emotions down on paper to clear his mind. He is also viewing God as his source of justice. He views God as his rock, as his foundation, as his redeemer, as his savior. You know, he has questions. He's making that clear throughout the book. He has questions. He has skepticism. He has tension. He has conflict. He has anger. He's not afraid to speak his mind to God himself about all the negative things that he's experiencing. But at the end of the day, he still chooses to place his trust in God. You know, sometimes we, uh, modern readers, we read Job and we see the crazy language he's using and we go, oh, wow, that sounds abrasive. That sounds aggressive. That sounds accusatory. And so we assume that Job must have been out of line to say this. And we, must, we assume that Job was sinning in his emotional expression. And so we say, this emotion is too dangerous. We can't be doing these things. Look at what Job is doing. He's, he's getting crazy. But look at what happens at the end of the book. After God shows up in Job 42, 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, a Temanite, one of his so-called friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So God is saying Job's friends were in the wrong, but Job was in the right. Now, why is that? Why is it that Job was in the right? It seemed like if you're tracking with the book of Job, we didn't read the whole thing, of course. You can read on your own time. But if you're reading the whole thing, it seems like Job was the one who complained the most. Job was the one who accused God the most. Job was the one who was angry at God the most. So how was it that Job was in the right? Job wasn't in the right because he had right theology. This isn't about right theology. This is poetry, remember? Job was in the right because he chose to be brutally honest about his emotions all the while continually trusting in God despite his painful emotions. That's why he was in the right. When my parents separated um, during my senior year of college, my first instinct was to bottle up my emotions. When I found out uh, over the phone, we're on the other side of the, we're on the opposite sides of the country. I found out over the phone. Um, I didn't cry or anything like that. I just kept doing what I was doing. Because after all, the whole thing fell out of my control. And I was like, I couldn't do anything to fix it. It already happened. You know, what can I do to help? So why, t- why, why waste time thinking about it? But in the years following over time, I realized that God was calling me to feel. God was inviting me into the space of brokenness and pain and injustice, of unfairness, so that healing and restoration and justice could begin. Because only, it's only through that process of emotional exploration and emotional investigation 
that I would resolve to, for example, build my marriage on integrity, that I would resolve to pursue a more authentic faith. It was these experiences, it was this journey in the valley that caused me to come out the other side with growth. You know, during that time, I prayed a lot of angry prayers like Job did. But at the end of the day, I kept holding on to my integrity. I kept trusting God. And I think over time, he used that suffering for my good. You know, some of you, you're aware of an enormous amount of injustice, whether at the individual level or the societal level. You're aware that many things have gone wrong. And sometimes you're at a loss to even know where to begin to start making things right. Maybe you've lost loved ones, uh, whether literally or relationally. Maybe you've, you're going through physical pain or suffering. Maybe you're having relational strife or marital strife. Even though you feel like you're trying really hard and you don't know what you need to do to make things work. Regardless of what you're going through, I invite you to do two things, which is what Job did. Firstly, be emotionally honest with God. Pray. Prayers of disappointment. Pray prayers of confusion. Pray prayers of pain. And secondly, keep trusting in God. Keep placing your hope in him. For though he slay me, I will hope in him. Maybe you're hearing that though and you're wondering, but why? What has God done to deserve my trust? Because it seems like all he's done is create a wasteland in my life. Why trust and hope in God? Do I have any proof that he is listening? And I would say, yes, we do have proof because there's one thing you see that sets us apart from Job and that is that we live on the other side of the cross. Earlier we asked, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible doesn't have a very straightforward answer, but it does say this, that the worst thing that ever happened happened to the best person who ever lived. And that was when Jesus, the righteous, blameless, spotless one, died a horrific death on the cross. You know, the story of Job is a glimpse into the story of Jesus. For Jesus, like Job, lost everything. He lost his father in heaven. He lost his glory. He lost his friends. He lost even his own life. And he did it to make things right. He did it so that we could have justice. The reason we have justice is because justice was accomplished on the cross. The reason we don't have to take matters into our own hands is because Jesus already took matters into his hands on the cross. And the reason why we can hope in God is because God the Father slayed his son on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have created us to be emotional beings. Even though sometimes we hate that side of ourselves, the side that brings us so much pain and turmoil. And we thank you for the examples that we read about in these biblical poetry, these wisdom books. Thank you for the gritty, emotional, raw honesty of people like Job, because it gives us permission to be vulnerable with our emotions as well. So God, as we go through this difficult journey of not hiding, of not cowering, but of diving into these emotions that you've given us, as we go through this difficult journey of listening to our emotions. Let us not be overrun with them, but let us tune in and listen to them and try to figure out what you're trying to teach us. God, may you help us to become aware of our needs so that we can run to you, the only one who is capable of fulfilling our needs. 
For we have no need of a Savior unless we are first aware of our needs, God. So open up our eyes, uh, open up our eyes to our needs and let us hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.